Welcome to Creative Welly, episode 21. My name is DK and it's been a few months, so welcome back. This is Courageous Conversations with Bold Humans. In this episode, we get to chat to Shadow Stone, a creative director and storyteller from Five and Dime, and also Troy Hammond, founder of the Talent Army, amongst other things, and a kick-ass recruiter. Big shout out to our hosts as ever, David at Flashdog Studios, who hosts us for free and is a pure gentleman for doing that. And also our video producer as well, the wonderful John O'Tucker over at Empire Films. Check them out. So without further ado, this is Creative Welly episode 21 and it's great to be back. Uh, so number one question is, what do you most value in your friends? It's a lovely question to kick us off with. So there we go. Who wants to take that first? I think, I think um, yeah, it's probably like talking to what we were talking about before earlier, right? So I think, so for me, I'm, I've been quite transient in my life. I've lived mm. in multiple countries mm. and I've always been, I've been moving for years. And so I've never really, like, it's, it's been, what's it been? 20 years since I lived in my hometown with my original crew of friends that you grow up with and your school friends. And so what, I think what I value from them versus what I value from recent friends is probably a little bit different. What I value about my friends back home is that you can just be, go home and see them after 20 years and nothing's changed. You, know, you can have in. honest conversations with each other. No one cares if anyone's successful or if anyone's unsuccessful, you know. We're just authentically ourselves, you know, with ourselves. And, and it's almost a bit like that dropping into that child state again, you know, mm. like where you can just relax and have fun. And I think with, with my current friends, as you get older, I turned 42 mm. the other day. And so, you know, like you, um, you probably, your friends become less and less, I think. You know, you don't essentially have lots of friends anymore. And so what I value now is if I pick up the phone and need to talk to someone that they answer or they'll check in, you know, to make sure that I'm okay or that, you know, mm. if I need some good, honest advice, they're, they're the friends. And then they'll make some time for you because we're all very busy people. And so... That's lovely. Mm. A great response. Mm. Yeah, I have a similar experience of, of being in transition mm. across different places and picking up different friends along the way and then valuing them in different ways. And I feel like I've gone through a, a journey of getting rid of friends as well yeah. that, that I okay. sort of realize weren't serving me and I wasn't serving them. And I think that's a natural part of life is sort of doing that once in a while, kind of reevaluating who you are and yeah. your values. And mm. so I think the friends that I've got now, the ones that I consider really, really close, you know, mm. I could literally tell them anything mm. and I don't feel any judgment. I, I really appreciate their perspectives and, sure. and I think honesty as well. Like, that's a huge value that I, that I try and be with my friends try and be honest even when it's difficult <laughs> it's tough right yeah it's really, it's really awesome though when you meet your authentic self with people and yeah. I think you know we were talking about this earlier mm. that you know over the years and you know like trying to build brand and trying to build a presence and a persona and you know in career and career it gets to a certain point where you realize you know what fuck it I don't care if, if someone doesn't like me I, I don't really mm. care and that's you know like I'm I used to be quite known for the zero fucks guy you know like that was something that I'd pitch out. And it wasn't necessarily that I wasn't interested in things. It was that I just reached a certain point in my life where I was like, if someone doesn't like me anymore, I don't really care. You know, mm. And that's their problem, mm. that they have, a, they have an issue with someone else and how I act. Um, 
and I'm obviously not malicious to people. I try, you know, I, th- I don't think I am. But it's it's really cool when you have these people in your lives that you can just be your authentic self mm. with, and, and that's smaller and smaller and smaller mm. as, the, as the years go on. But mm. it's closer and closer and, and more special, I think. Mm. Yeah, and you mentioned the childlike state earlier as well. I think you, you, you have that gift when you're a child of not really giving a lot of yeah. fucks about who you are or what you do. And then as you get older, I think society... <laughs> The pressures and the narratives just weigh you down. Yeah. And you do feel this immense kind of conditioning to be mm. a certain way or to, to fit in a box. And I think that's nice when you find that liberation mm. as you get older in life, perhaps, or if you go through, you know, certain experiences. And mm. Oh, there's that, that shared experience, right, that you have with people yeah. and feel connected to them because you've had that journey. Mm. Um, one of the things I learned years ago in my 20s was about reciprocal energy. And I don't mean any floaty stuff. I mean, literally, if you spend a lot of time chasing people, phoning them up, hanging out, you know, you're the one traveling to them, you know, Mm. that's energy expended, right? But if you're not getting similar stuff back, you very quickly feel a little bit, you know, like the energy vampires that we've become to know as, they just suck energy from you, man. But there's a physicalness to that as well. You're always the one chasing up. You're always the one texting or following up. And I, I noticed that a lot with people. People who are deep friends are totally weird because in one way they make the energy, they devote some energy to the, they devote time and, and stuff. But equally as well, I have friends who I don't see from years because, you know, if I go back to Wales, mm. it's been two years, and I literally haven't spent time with them. We sit down and again, we're mm. back into the flow and it doesn't really matter. It's just weird. But I really like uh, the idea of people giving as much as you give them. Mm. And there's that balance. Mm. And I think forgiveness too. Like forgiveness is okay. a big thing for me with friends because we all fuck up over our lives. You know, yeah. we make mistakes. And I think true friends will you know, empathize that nobody's perfect, you know, and then they'll forgive you. And, you know, and I've had that in my, in my lifetime. You know, I, yeah. I grew up pretty crazy hard childhood. And so I used to wear a Where mask. Where was this, by the way? In Melbourne. In Melbourne, yeah. Yeah, yeah had a pretty interesting childhood and right, so okay. I developed this thing that I learned later through psychology and, and got past it that I used to wear some masks you know sort of cover yeah. my true feelings and so you made some I made some stupid thing comments and or not comments but did some stupid things to mm. impress people when I was a younger kid yeah, yeah. Um, and it's funny like because when I went back home to Melbourne when the travel bubble opened everyone was like you're just it's just so good to see you you know like and we laugh and we joke about the stupid things we all used to do and they brought up some things and i'm like oh my god you know you just instantly go back into the i can't believe i fucking did that you know and they're like laughing and that's okay mate we love you you know and i think that's nice. that's mm. special for me you know and mm. i think that's something that i've tried to carry with my life you know as people make mistakes that you know that you offer forgiveness straight away versus mm. you know trying to manipulate the situation or make them feel worse about it so that's a beautiful perspective to take because we are all human at the end of the yeah. day. And when you look at these people who are potentially in positions of power or influence and you mm. see them trying to pretend like they don't have a past or they don't have tendencies of, yeah. you know, creating trauma or, you know, mm. recreated trauma based on mm. their own tra- traumatic experiences, then yeah. you sort of, it's easy to criticize and it's easy to, to sort of vilify them when yeah. things don't go to plan, but we are all are human. And we're all fallible, right? We're all fallible, mm. and, and recognizing that in other people is probably a great yeah. gift because it's, you know, you don't hi- hold people at that high expectation, you don't hold yourself at that high expectation either. So what impact does that have, though, on leadership from a perspective, like we look at the Jacinda Ardern's and the Ashley Bloomfields and stuff, and 
starting to see a lot of political stuff on LinkedIn nowadays, criticizing these people. I'm going, well, they're fallible as well. I don't expect any leader in the world to be infallible, unfallible, unflappable, whatever it is. Um, but also in terms of business, in terms of equal relationships with mm. everything else, we have to be a bit more forgiving, coming back to your point, but what you picked up there. Um, going back to though Melbourne, how long have you not been in Melbourne? 20 years, almost. Right. Yeah, almost 20 years. And so I'm pretty much a Kiwi now, right? Mm. So yeah. So you <laughs> came lived, over here when... I lived in the in States, your... lived in the UK, and yeah. then um, my ex-wife dragged me here kicking and screaming to New Zealand, and I woke up and I was oh, like, okay. what the fuck have I done? It's raining every day and it's cold and I'm miserable. <laughs> and came to Wellington then. Yeah. Like yeah. Melbourne, though, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> well, Melbourne, you get like the true seasons, right? So you know, all right, it's going to be yeah. sunny soon anyway, so I'll wait it out. Here, you can go through a period of six months where it's just miserable. Mm. And I got here in that period, and I was like, what have I done? And mm. Right, yeah. And, yeah, and it was interesting. Like, I was talking about this the other day with someone. They, were, they said, oh, how was it being an Aussie moving over the side? Because normally Kiwis go that way. Yeah. And I said, well, it was tough initially because there's so, so many little nuances that you just, you know, because it's so similar that you think you could be exactly the same as you were in Australia and be here in New Zealand and it'll be okay. But mm. it turns out it's not, you know, like... Okay, like what? Give us an example of the nuances. So humour is definitely different here. Like, yeah. I find New Zealand is a lot more emotional... Um, in terms of humour, and Australians probably a little bit more, like if New Zealand is on this scale emotional, and Australians are a little bit more crass, right. you know, so we okay. as, as Aussies tend to if there's a little weak point that you have we'll joke about that, because right. you know, it's funny to us, you know, to joke mm-hmm. about that it's horrible when you say it out loud um, <laughs> it really is and then, so like if I was very cross, it'd be like four eyes blah blah blah, you know, and then New right. Zealanders are opposite, and oh, shit, you wouldn't joke about that that's a really emotive to me, you know, and so yeah. okay. I remember when I first got here, I'd be sitting in the bars having a drink, and someone would get really angry and I'm like, oh my god, what am I doing wrong here you know? mm. and it was just little things um, and definitely the um, tall poppy thing, you know yeah. is huge here in New Zealand mm. you, if you're successful, people want to shoot you down, and they want to bring you back down because yeah. you know, that's not it wasn't so, it was a little bit more foreign here in New Zealand that all these people having success were in Australia. I think we're bred to be successful, you know, like from mm. a very early age. It's all about winning, whether it be in business, whether it be in life, whether it be in sports. Yeah. And so, yeah, you know, little, just little nuances that were okay. different. Yeah. Um, but then the good things, uh, there is no better place in the world for me than Wellington to create a business because right. it's so, we're so intrinsically interlocked in terms of people and process and business and if you do well and if you're doing the right things and if you're helping people and you know doing doing it for the right reasons people will help you and mm. I, f- I find Wellington business just phenomenal you know like I've never had okay. more mentors in my life I've never mm. had more people helping and supporting me and and by default that's made me you know anytime I can offer my support and help you know I will so mm. yeah it's, mm. it's so close but it's different you know Definitely, yeah. Mm. Well, just lingering on the culture difference, Mm -hmm. your cultural differences in terms of you spent a lot of time in somewhere else, right? Yeah, yeah. I was born here in, Mm -hmm. uh, well, not here in Wellington, but I was born in Kaukawa, in the far north of um, Aotearoa. And then I, when I was eight months old, my parents moved to Hawaii. So I spent the first five years in Hawaii Mm -hmm. and then moved to Barbados for a really quick stint while my dad was working there and then moved back to New Zealand and then moved back to Hawaii when I was 10. So I've, I've been small island nations for (laughs) my whole life. So it's really interesting to see the the similarities and the differences between Aotearoa and the Hawaiian islands. And then that colonialist influence that's Mm. come from 
you know, those big power structures and capitalism and, mm. and that tension that it's created through the cultures. And Hawaii and New Zealand are really similar, like language-wise, like culture-wise. Like the obvious, right? Yeah. Island nation, Pacific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is isolated, you know. Right. But also very reliant on the rest of the world, but has so many unique gifts to, mm. to bring and to, to kind of leverage. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But a beautiful perspective, too. I love Hawaii. I know I go every year, and it's pretty sad the last couple of years not being I know. Mm. <laughs> I've got my brother over there, and mm-hmm. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm eight months pregnant, so I've got my, my um, first child on the way, and my family over in the States can't come to see us, mm. which, you know, a, a lot of people are in the same boat, and mm. yeah, that's a real ch- challenging kind of position to be in, but we're, we're grateful that we can still connect in other ways, which is, you've got to keep, keep positive. But <laughs> Yeah, at the moment, right? You've got to keep that uh, sensibility about what we got compared mm. to what we don't have. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the celebration. Um, I think you still need to be, be mindful that it's, some things are tough, though, right? Like, mm. you have to like, be in that moment and say, you know what, it is going to be sad, you know, that your family's not all around you, and you need to relish, like, not relish that, but you need to be aware of that socially mm. so that you, mm. you don't let it fester inside you. Um, yeah, totally. Toxic positivity, I think they call that, yeah. when you sort of let your... What's it called? Toxic positivity. You know, there's a right. real trend. Never heard that. Well, yeah, no, it's something that actually my colleagues, um, psychologists told her about, which was, I think, spawned from the social media, the rise of social media and everyone mm. obviously wanting everything to be highly edited and highly polished. Mm. Okay. And sort of engaging in that very kind of, you know, optimistic glow. Like Instagram sure reality, yeah. of, you know, the, the filters and stuff like that. So it'd be similar. Mm. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. But to your point, you know, I think there's also a lot of growth that happens in discomfort. Well, there's mm. the most growth that can mm. happen in discomfort. So if you glean over that and you just focus on the positives, then obviously yeah. you're not learning anything and you're not experiencing and you're pushing stuff down. Yeah. Yeah, so we're um, we're in a really great position that we've got lots of friends around us, and yeah. you know we're not we're not going to be one of those families that has. Well, my mum is actually also up north, so we're just hoping that if the level two, if Auckland goes into level two, that she can come down for a couple of weeks. Ooh, cutting it close, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's just on the other like other side Easy of Auckland, so thirtieth of October. Oh, fingers crossed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's two weeks away, right? So it's just like it is. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oof, that's mad. So we're all immigrants yeah, in that regards. We have that shared history. What do you miss from your respective homes or places you were brought up and mm. do you miss anything specific? I really miss uh, Aussie rules football. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty much the only thing I miss. Like, I miss my okay. family, obviously, and my, mm. I miss my friends. Um, but I just can't get into rugby, you know, like... Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I really miss that. I miss um, I miss the warm water, the warm water, <laughs> really a lot. Surfing in warm water and not mm. not going down to Lyle and it's freezing and cold. Then, yeah. And, yeah. And then yeah. getting yeah. out. I can imagine from a Hawaii perspective, it'd be yeah. similar. Mm-hmm. That warmth. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. I don't mean yeah. to cut you off. I'm just having no. lots of flashbacks of yeah. warmth. Warm <laughs> it's beautiful outside today, although, you know, mm. you wouldn't be able to tell by the, the environment course. that we're in right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's always sunny here. It's beautiful. beautiful. It's you can't I love it. Can't be it on a good day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but I think as the longer, the, the longer I've lived away from Australia, the less I miss 
you know, like, yeah. okay. And, I, and that was a big realization for me when I went back home for the travel bubble. I thought, all right, I'm going to go. If I get stuck there, who cares? Because I love Melbourne and it's my home yeah. and I'd love to, love to get stuck in my hometown. And then I was there for a week and I thought, I miss home. Mm. You know, like I miss nice. Wellington, yeah. I miss New Zealand. And and made me realise that a lot of the things that I thought that I missed were just sentimental things that, you know, I didn't yeah. really Nostalgia miss. Nostalgia almost. Yeah. Mm. And so... Right. So you really miss, like, you miss your family. You yeah. miss the closeness of being able to drop around and see. Like, my brother's just had a baby, his first baby. Mm-hmm. He had cancer and was told that he probably wouldn't be able to have kids. And so wow. the fact that he's been able to have a little daughter, yeah, is fantastic. And I, cool. I really hate that I can't just drive around and see yeah. him, you know, and, and say, yeah. And you see all this stuff on Instagram, right? You know, you see all these mm. things on social media and it yeah, makes you feel hurt that you can't share that with them. But in the reality, like, I don't, I don't miss heaps about home. That's cool. mm. That's interesting. Yeah, I think you make home yeah. wherever you are, right? And, if, mm. and I, I really resonate with what you said about going, going away and then coming back to Wellington. Like, every time I fly into Wellington, it's generally a mix of nerves from, <laughs> from the bumpy, turbulent landing and also just, like, the beautiful harbour that you fly into. Yeah. It's just, I, I feel it in my soul. I'm like, oh, I'm home. And... Yeah, my partner actually wants to leave Wellington, and it's it's one of those things that Tension I'm there. I'm really sad about <laughs> because it's not like I mean I have a business, but other than that, you know, and I've and lovely friends and mm. a real community here, but you know, other than that, there's not really anything keeping keeping us here other than a house. But mm. it's something we can obviously rent if we yeah. if we leave. So where does he want to go? He he's a surfer as well, so yeah. he wants to go to either Taranaki or Dunedin or yeah. somewhere next to the ocean that has decent okay. waves. And yeah, he's yeah. also a brewer, so he wants to use the opportunity to move and set up a little kind of micro brewery yeah. or pub somewhere else. So okay. we'll see. We'll see what that ends up looking mm-hmm. like. But but It'll Hawaii is a good a option. Bit, yeah, I, I I said to him maybe we could go back to Hawaii because as as I've been on this pregnancy journey, I've realised just how much I I do miss home. Yeah. I do miss Hawaii, and I think. Also, that maybe some of that is convenience. You know, that you walk outside and it's really, really nice, and you don't. You know, just with warm weather, I think comes yeah. this ease and kind of flow that you can get trapped in. You know, you yeah. can become very unproductive and want to spend all your time just on the beach or <laughs> hanging out, of not course. getting work done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Paddleboarding and yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, it's you know that ease of just knowing that you can. You know, Hawaii is a place where you can leave your car door unlocked. You know, mm. people don't, there's not a lot of crime, yeah. petty crime there. And, you know, people leave their houses un- unlocked. And it's just a really trusting yeah. kind of place. And w- But the flip side of that is that there's a lot of, the, the wealth inequality is huge. Mm, you know, yeah. you see so many homeless living on the street. And they're, si- they're sleeping in a park that's right next to, you know, multi-million dollar mm. houses. And it's... That, that part of it is really sad, mm. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yeah. And it's because of that climate and because of that ease of, of existing that the, the U.S. government actually, the Canadian, or sorry, Canadian, California sends homeless people on a plane, one-way ticket to Hawaii. No way. To get yeah, rid of the problem. Them. Yeah. Offloading it. Yeah. It's better, like, it's I bad. run at nighttime Hawaii because it's, like, not as hot. And so I run, yeah. run along the waterfront, and it's just the amount of people living like along the beach is just really, really wow. sad. Mm, mm. And then there's a lot of drug problems that come with that, drug yeah. and alcohol problems, because mm. you know it's really easy and cheap to get, and mm. yeah, and the weather's so good. You know, you could sleep outside. 
you can sort of make a make a house out of a cave or mm. out of a tree and so there's can, a lot yeah, yeah. Just a temperate climate mm. yeah wow. do you find that you miss home more when you're not right in your personal space like do you so for me I missed home the most when I had young kids mm. for various reasons. I was tired and I was stressed. I didn't have the support around me mm. being my, um, my wife at the time had family that was friend and family and friends that were close. I just moved here within two months, pregnant, you know, wow. having a baby. And it was a, that was probably the toughest time, the most homesick that I was, young mm. family. Mm. But then the longer that I went, the longer that I went and the more that I realized the realization that I love Wellington and Wellington became my home, the less I missed. And so mm. it's probably only now I miss home when a special life thing happens or, you know, like something mm. happens over there or, or something happens here that I want to share it with someone. And mm. so, but yeah, some like semantics and other things, you know, like, mm. but I think you, like, I remember when I first got here to Wellington, I hated everything about New Zealand, you know, like I, I didn't hate it, it's unfair to say, but it was like the weather. You know, the, the people yeah, yeah, that it was yeah. different, you know. That well, it I sounded had, like you didn't want to come. Yeah. Right? You I, were dragged yeah. to your kids. Yeah, we were, we were definitely going to Melbourne. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> we'd we come here. And, but, um, yeah, and then I just, I wasn't ready to be here. And yeah. I didn't enjoy, mm. and I didn't have any friends. And, mm. you know, and so, and then, and then I remember, like, being really annoyed and upset about it for, like, the first three, four months. And then when we, I found out, hey, we're, and we're pregnant, I was like, oh, no, we're stuck here. You mm. know, and mm. it wasn't until I, I thought to myself, Right, well, I need to commit to Wellington now, and so I need to go out and do something about it. And so I researched, you know, AFL football in New Zealand, and I found that there's four teams that play each other every other four weeks you oh, know, right. in Wellington, this tiny little league. And I was like, well, I'm going to go and do that. And yeah. and so just going and doing that made me a little bit happier. And then going to you know other things made me a little bit happier. And then and then it got to the point where I'd committed to New Zealand, mm. and I just started missing things less and less and less and less. And now mm. it was like almost you were finding communities yeah. to tap into that satisfied your nostalgia or yeah. whatever it was. Um, but you're right, yeah, I, I miss odd things about Wales. Um, and for me, the biggest thing of late, apart from family, apart from friends, which yeah. we go to, it's like the valleys, the physicalness of the valleys. Where I was brought up in a place called pont de which is at the heads of the valleys, 10 miles north of Cardiff, where the valleys, in a sense, start, mm-hmm. right? That's why it's called heads of the valleys. And every... Most years I used to go back and be back for, this is going to be the longest time I've not been back home in in a decade. But every time I go back, usually it's around September time, so it's at the end of the summer, and I just see how lush Mm. everything is, how green is my valley and all that, right? But it is, everything is thronging with nature and life, and because of where I'm from, literally my parents' house where I was brought up is on the side of the valley which we look across the valley so it's got a beautiful vista across this you know and then the taff which is the river that runs through the valleys which mm. is where we become known as the taffies you know the welsh mm. people the taffs um that's what we see and we see not just like buildings but also a huge amount of greenery and trees and thronging with that life as i said and i miss weirdly that type mm. of thing that kind of nature land kind of connection have you missed it the whole time or has that been... I've only noticed in the last probably five years since I've been back because I've been paying attention. Because yeah. usually when you go back in the first couple of years, you're like, it's an assault on the senses because yeah. you've just been away f- and been doing other things. Then you're back again and you're usually doing the, the very quick thing of catching up with as many people as possible. Yeah. Uh, and attention is going to humans rather than physical place. Yeah. 
And then over the years you go back and it's a little bit more calmer because you know what to expect now. Yeah. And a lot more time is just spent with. Um, there's a beautiful thing in, in Wales called the Eisteddfod, which is uh, Eisteddfod. Um, and it's a national kind of competition celebration every year of Welsh culture, right? And I remember going to it as a kid and being very bored by it, right? But there we go. <laughs> but Eisteddfod, the actual word is two words pushed together. It means sit and be. And it was established by, like, in the 12th century by the original or old, one of the old prince of Wales. We should have princes, right? Um, and it means just sit and be. And he used to bring people together just to sit and be. And they were all, like, poets and mm. bards or mm. musicians or just philosophers or druids. Uh, back in those days, there were druids, right? Uh, and they just sit and be and trust in the ability of people to add value to each other. Mm. And Sounds I think like there's a lot of day on conference. Mm. Mm-hmm. It was a traditional <laughs> on conference, you're right. I said that. That's what it was. Um, and I'm really interested in that going forward now. It's just sitting and being in mm. places with people, though. Is that because we just don't do that anymore? Do you yeah, think now, right? Yeah. yeah. And now with COVID being accelerated, everybody's thrown online. Um, mm. So now with, even with Even before COVID, right? Like, yeah. How, how often would you go to an event and people could just different communities to come together and sit without looking at their phones, mm-hmm. without yeah. stepping out to take a, a phone call, without doing all these things? People don't. We're just too busy these days, right? Mm. And, and the only time you do do it is if you're being invited to be deeply intentional yeah. about not yeah. doing it mm. rather than you just <coughs> do it. It's like mm. put your phones away or yeah. you're going for a family meal and it's like, no, leave your phones over there. We're going to have, you know, there's an intention to it. Um, but yeah, the I'd, optics of it too, right? Like, have you ever go out and you see somebody who's not on a phone or who's just, yeah. and they're by themselves and they're just sitting and looking around? Yeah, the weirdos, yeah. It's strange. <laughs> From society's perspective, yeah. right? So, yeah. I listen to lots yeah. of podcasts. And so whenever I'm on public transport or whenever I'm in a setting with lots of people around, I'll just have my earpods in and my phone will be in my pocket and I'll just be looking around. And it's, it's funny because you just see these like one or two other people that aren't staring at their phones, yeah. you know, and they just sort of smile at each other and you're like, hey, like, how are you? Mm. You're a human too. Everyone else is like yeah. head down, you know. And you see these memes now of people you know, that we're all going to have bad necks and yeah. it's, it's so true, you know. Yeah. But there's some lovely photos back in the day in the like 1920s or 30s with newspapers, yeah. like mm. on trains and stuff. Everybody's got a newspaper. So we all have a problem with attention versus yeah. the technology, I think. Yeah. It's just this has been made more um, addictive. It's yeah. like crack. Mm. And recently I've been, I was showing John earlier on that I've changed my phone to monochrome. So everything is, no, there's no colors, just black mm. and white. Uh, and I was reading some, some stuff online about if you do that, it's just, it reduces the temptation from that color therapy mm. stuff of mm. like all the colors have been designed purposely to draw your attention in. But without color now, I, I've literally not looked at my phone as much hmm. because That's of it. Great. When I'm scrolling or reading stuff on there, it's much more attention is given to the content rather than yeah. the pretty things, so we say. Yeah, so, yeah. That's my secret fantasy is to not look at my phone as much. There we go. Mm. I but it's steal a, your phone. You, it is an intentionality thing though, right? Like yeah. there's a, an, a really famous neuroscientist, Nur Eyal, who wrote, wrote a book that influenced a lot of high growth startups like Facebook and Google about how to hack people's attention yeah. called um, Habit. And he then wrote a later book, which is I think re- released in the last kind of year and a half, called Indistractable, and he talks about, you know, how you have to con- consciously 
kind of reprogram yourself yeah. to, to not let these things distract you because mm -hmm. it is. And unfortunately, we are so yeah. at the mercy of our subconscious and our patterning. And we are, you know, these creatures of habit. And we just get into these cycles of picking up our phone and looking yep. at it and then getting kind of swept away by mm. the beauty of the color mm. and, you know, the and notifications. And endorphins <laughs> and rush. I was going to say about yeah. the notifications. Yep. They hook you in. They serve you stuff that they know kind of algorithmically are going to get you more more involved in it. And it is a, a sad indictment of our society that if you are trained in like PhD, master's level around psycholo psychology of addiction, mm. you can walk into a job in Facebook, mm. but they just wrap it up in, around like engagement. Mm. You know, and they, yeah. <laughs> but really it's the addiction methodologies thereafter. How yeah. does someone get addicted? How can we use that mm. for algorithmic kind of pleasure? All of these all industries, you know, design, marketing, yeah. Even sometimes recruitment, you know, I think there there are a lot. <laughs> there are a lot. Love that There's back a in. lot of uh, of underlying human psychology that you know yeah. is, is being tapped into. That people, I think, as you get, as you evolve, uh, as those industries mm. evolve, it's the, the amount of science and kind of um, yeah neuroscience that's being tapped into to to really mm. create that that momentum that you need. <laughs> so one of my questions I had down to ask you was about that, but relating to storytelling. Mm. So could you, because I know what you do, but I might not know, and people obviously who are watching this, what do you do and where does storytelling and how have you kind of transitioned and utilized storytelling as a, a mode? Yeah. Last yeah. Years. So I, so I started in the startup space actually. So I, well, I was actually a self-trained graphic designer when I, first left high school, I took a design class in my last year of high school and thought, you know, because I, I was also, I had a bit of a rough kind of teenage years and it wasn't because of my family situation. I was incredibly privileged. I was, you know, had a loving mum and loving dad who, who left us quite early as a family. So probably a little bit of trauma there, which I'm constantly unpacking. <laughs> but I, I figured I want to go into the arts and do that even though I, I love science I always consider myself being you know if I didn't do arts I would do neuroscience or psychology so yeah. did a design class in high school and then I figured myself a designer so <laughs> I got a few freelance clients sort of right off of the back of high school and built up a bit of a freelance portfolio and then decided I wanted to study a Bachelor of Communications at Messy so did that specialized in marketing and then as I was studying I got some work with Samantha Gadd from Humankind here in Wellington. So I did half of my degree up in Kitty Kitty remotely and then moved down to Wellington and did the rest of it here and worked alongside Sam and she had a couple of really cool clients at the time that she was, I was working for her, but then I ended up working with her clients. So three months was one of them. So they were one of the mm. early app development companies based here in Wellington that used Agile mm. methodology. So. Met Mark. I remember there was like holacracy time and all the things. That was it. Yeah. When I first met you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so <coughs> I worked with Mark Pascal for mm. a little bit and then um, worked for Property IQ as a contractor, which was a um, property data company before CoreLogic, which is a big US based company, bought, um, well, they were, they were part owners of them. Also, RP Data, which are Australian based data company. Um, they merged and bought Terralink, which is a government government owned that owned QV.co.nz, QV a few other kind wow. of property related data services. Mm 
and products. So, yeah, I worked for them for a couple of years as a contractor and then started Five and Dime off the back of that, which is essentially at the time we were just filling a gap in the market for really flexible mm. marketing and comms sort of on-demand talent. What year was this? 2014. Right. Yeah, so yeah. seven years ago now. So, yeah, I've been doing it for seven years and, well, I've, I kind of joke around about having never had a real boss because <laughs> Sam, I love her so much and she's obviously going to come and do one of these episodes after this, which mm-hmm. is so Later fortuitous <laughs> how our paths keep crossing. Mm-hmm. Um, she was an incredible mentor and um, role model as a leader and I think seeing the way she operates in business and, and sort of she inspired me to actually start Feynmanheim and helped a lot along the way in terms of yeah, setting me up with early you know, contracts and policies and helping me with recruitment and all sorts of stuff. So she's a, an incredible human, but seeing how she led her team and seeing the gap that she felt filled in the market, I was sort of drawn to take a similar direction. And then I started working in the social enterprise space, actually. So the last kind of five years, I, I started working with the Yakina Foundation, which was... Um, a real eye-opener for me because I've always been quite a strong values-driven person without realizing it. You know, I think yeah. when I was a younger, I was I went through the, the whole zero fucks given <laughs> um, phase of, of trying to shape my identity and being confused about what that might look like and mm-hmm. and pushing back and, um, and then realized that actually there's this whole other market. So work, after working with startups through Creative HQ, it was one of our early clients, um, for you know, seeing the power that they had to disrupt markets and scale and sort of take on these massive, you know, um, conglomerates or or incumbents and and succeed in a lot of cases, and well, in many m- more cases than not. Now, mm-hmm. if we look at the top 100 and even top 50 and top three, they're all startups. So mm-hmm. it's amazing, you know, to see the shift in the last 10 years. But doing that. There's costs involved, you know, sort of un, unintended consequences. So I, I got involved in social enterprise through Akina and from there realized that the cost can be sort of accounted for in a really mindful way. So social enterprise puts profit and purpose at the same level. So yeah. it's, um, it's a really beautiful model of mm. looking at, you know, the intergenerational, what are you leaving behind? You know, mm. How do you conduct yourself as a business that's not going to compromise future generations' success? How can you take some of the biggest challenges that we have, not just with access to tech or data, but access to you know, economic sovereignty or regenerative well-being or you know, some of these kind of bigger systemic issues? And how can you solve those in a really kind of smart and effective way? and scale, hopefully. Mm. So, so you've yeah. been doing the, the marketing and branding around the campaigns and projects and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So storytelling for me was, a, was kind of a David versus Goliath moment of looking at the marketing industry and feeling very disenfr- mm. disenfranchised and looking at how it's becoming very much, you know, data-driven about human psychology and about hacking people's attention and getting them to think that they need to buy these things that they don't need to buy in order to make other people think that they're happy. <laughs> what is yeah. that saying about, you know, earn all this money so you can buy things that you don't actually want or need so that you can make people that you don't actually like happy. It's <laughs> kind of the trap that I found myself in, not necessarily working for, you know, the likes of a property data company or 
you know, a growing tech startup, but, but I could just see that that was the, the path that my career was going to go down. So, so storytelling for me is it's a really ancient human connection tool. So it's about tapping into fundamental truths, about tapping into your values, about tra- tapping into emotions, and being really um, intentional about how you use that to create change. So, yeah, a lot of our work is, is with organizations and individuals who have you know, a purpose mission or a, sort of a, an agenda to create systemic change. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, we're, I'm really loving you know, the work that I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm going to go on paternity leave or paternal, paternity leave? Maternity. Maternity leave. <laughs> and I think, I, you know, as, as much as I'm really excited about this chapter, I'm also really excited about the work that I'm leaving behind, which I yeah. feel like is a really good place to be. Yeah. And will probably pick up as you go forward. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And you come back to it. You're not leaving it behind. You're just pausing. Yeah, exactly. While she looked after Bob. But I think that's the dragon that everyone's chasing, right? That work that fills your own cup. You yeah. Know? And I think um, so many people are too scared to do that. I see that, obviously, being a recruiter, you know, mm. like... I see every day, like my first question I ask people is, okay, well, what's your ideal job? You know, let, let's not me talk about these things that I'm currently working on. Tell me what your ideal job is and what you're passionate about. And, <coughs> excuse me, a lot of the time people will say, well, I would really love to work in an ethical company. I would love to do this. However, okay. I can't afford to. Mm. And that's usually the first two things that they say. So I need to work in a company like this. If you could find me a company that has a, a social good element paying $180,000 a year, I would love it. And I'm like, well, you know, unfortunately, that's not always the case. Mm. And so I would say probably 60% of people, that's how they open with what they describe. And wow. so it's pretty okay. courageous you know, mm. to go after what, you, what fills your cup, knowing mm. that it's not going to be the most lucrative, you know, because mm. you've obviously made that decision in your life that you want something that fills gives you purpose yeah and I think once you find that you know you can create visions and you can create business and you can you can expand you can get the monetary value out of that if you're doing it you know if you're doing it successfully and well but Mm. no it's gonna it's harder at the start and so I think it's very admirable what you're doing yeah Mm. thank you and I I mean it's interesting the storytelling piece for me as well is, is sort of who has held the who has held the pen in the past and what stories have been written and what stories do we believe to be true and what stories do we not believe to be true? And one of them is around money. Like I've done a lot of unpacking of my relationship with money and my money story. And I think I've read those stats that say that if you earn anywhere over 80K a year, that you're actually not, there's no correlation between that, that level of income and happiness. And I found, you know, just being really clear about what do I actually need in life and what do I want in life and what kind of money do I need to be able to earn to get that? Yeah. Not that I'm not going to sort of skimp on the things that are important to me. Maybe I, I love going out for dinners. I love kind of mm. buying nice things. But knowing that that's a priority and knowing how much that cost gives me a really clear sense of, okay, well, this is how much I need to earn. This is how much I don't need to earn. <laughs> and that's a really liberating kind of way of looking at it, not just, not just chasing, you know, the next pay rise or the next opportunity or the next project because... That's what society says is success. I love that because that's a challenge for probably a lot of people listening. They're always chasing the next promotion, the next bump in their salary grade or level or whatever they're doing, rather than thinking, well, is that I'm fulfilled, I'm happy, I'm filling my spirit, not my ego, as we talked about earlier. And uh, Mm. yeah, and there's also a lot of research around people who won the lottery 
in terms of their happiness levels. If you were horrible and you know and weren't in a good place winning the lottery, you reset back to it after the initial joy of hey, I got money, but now I'm going to just make money to make me miserable. Because have you ever read the? I can't remember what her name is. She was a um, uh, what's the what's the term? Like an old a nursing home nurse. Um, okay. She worked in nursing home in, and it was an elite. You had to have, you know, like a very like high net worth to be in this nursing home. Okay. And she started interviewing people as they would become closer to dying, mm. around what their biggest regrets in life were, what their biggest joyful moments were, and as it came, I think she did like a thousand, a thousand interviews, and the biggest regret was that they spent too much time working and not enough time mm. with their family, mm. spent too much time chasing money, you know, and so that was ultimately their biggest regret and I think you know I see that day in day out I was going to say what about mm. you know your reflections on that but also the, what, the work you do mm. yeah well, I think so I mean, and for me I'm, my, my story is a little bit similar probably not um, like uh, as wholesome I left all the other stuff out <laughs> yeah, you know, the, 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 the debauchery stuff. Uh, gambling <laughs> or whatever my, um, so I I worked in sales for years and then worked and then went to move to London and thought, holy shit, I'm going to need to get a job. Wait. And then walked into a recruitment company and they said, do you want to come and work for us? And I looked around and it was like they're having their Christmas party in one of Gordon Ramsay's, you know, restaurants in a fancy in the Savoy. And, and I heard the guy said, there's a million dollars, a million quid on the bar. And I was like, and you guys do what? Recruitment? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, yeah, I want a piece of this, you know. And I, I grew up really poor. I had to steal food, you know, as a young child wow. to feed my brothers and the like. So wow. for me, money was everything, yeah. you know. And, and so I saw that and my eyes just went, dollar signs, yeah, mm. I can do this. I'm good at sales. Mm. I'm good at dealing with people. I can do this. And so I did it. And I, I was very successful at it. And then I moved to New Zealand and had to start again. The, the thing I didn't I mean, probably mention before is there's this weird thing in New Zealand about New Zealand experience. You know, oh, if you don't yeah. have New Zealand experience, you know, well, how do we know that you're any good? And I'm like, well, I've worked right. in Melbourne and New York and London, you know, and they're pretty big cities, you know, but Wellington, sure. And so I pretty much had to start my <laughs> career again and earn it from the start. And so then I, um, you know, met, met a really lovely lady, uh, Linda, who hired me and said, "Go for it," you know, and and I did really well and built built that business and built the next business, and then I remember I had this epiphany where I was interviewing. I had interviews booked in my diary all day to interview recruiters, okay. and it was about halfway through the day that I just almost gave up. I was like, "Holy fucking shit, are we this bad?" You know, as a as an industry recruiter, right, yeah. like they're just liars and mm. cheats, and they'll just mm. tell me anything to get the job. and And I remember thinking. It can't be this. It can't be like this. There's got to be, you know. And so, I, and I started changing my interview style over the the rest of the day just to sort of see how people were and try and try and get some real, authentic self out of people. And none of them would give it to me, you know. And so, and so I made the decision at the end of the day that I'm just going to quit my job and I'm going to, um, wow. yeah, I'm okay. going to go off and 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 I had a software startup that I was building behind the scenes, which was recruitment related. Which is a whole other story for a whole other podcast. It's like on how not to do a startup, right, which involves the, a person in the business um, 
there was drugs involved from Silk Road, there was police coming into the office, there well, was money okay, being embezzled, yeah. you know, there was a whole thing. So when I went into that business to run it as the CEO, I quickly found out everything was been happening and decided to exit that business and forfeit all my shareholding and likes in the business because mm-hmm. um, it was that bad. And then I found myself without a job and I was like, holy shit, what do I do? Mm. And I think I tweeted something and Kirsty Grant from Vend at the time said, shit, you know, we're growing all these people, why don't you come here? So and you were in Melbourne at the time? So no, I was here in oh, Wellington, here. yeah. Um, oh, so this startup was happening in Wellington? Yeah, this yeah. Silk Road drug embezzlement. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, wow. It's a whole other story. It's a, it's a, every time I tell people, they're like, you should write that book. Yeah. Because yeah. right. there's like, I mean, yeah. <laughs> there's there's like, lots of things. It'll be one. Yeah. <laughs> that was Richie, yeah. producer, um, director. So then, um, <laughs> so yeah, so we yeah. just went up. So, so as then, long as Brad Pitt or someone plays me, I'm happy. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, where, there we go. I don't care where the story goes. <laughs> of course, yeah, but, yeah. Um, or Ted Lasso, maybe. Um, <laughs> so yeah, then, um, so then, Kirsty rang me and said, "How hey, don't you come and work at Vend?" And I and I would never have gone and worked internally at a recruit in a, at a business before because I was the old, you know, like I can't. I don't want to be in, involved in politics. I don't want to do the HR stuff. Right. You know. I like, I'm a hired gun. I like to jump in, jump out, and, and that's my personality and my brain. You know, like I start things, I leave once, once they're sort of, yeah, of they're done. But then when I went and worked at Vend, it was like, just opened my eyes completely to like empathy of people and the recruitment part that I was missing was that how I was changing people's lives afterwards. You know, like I'd see the result of what I was doing and I'd see the result if it was good or it was bad or it was indifferent. And it would be in, in my face every day that mm. if I did a good job and I helped build that team. And so, so then I started thinking about, well, I'm not just recruiting one person. I'm recruiting for a whole team here. And that team is a part of a company. And mm. so I started thinking really holistically about how I recruit and what I did. And, and working in a startup was fun, you know. And it was yeah. people were authentic. And, you know, I was changing people's lives. You know, they were getting some really amazing experience. Or they were getting to work in these really cool companies where, you know, that they would have... Way more growth over two years than they would have in a big corporate. And then, but then I realized pretty quickly that I, I get bored of being in the one company, you know, like as much as Ven was really cool, I just, mm. I just wasn't a company guy, you know, <laughs> and, and so I kept resigning. And Kirsty kept saying no, you know. And then um, <laughs> I remember I was like, oh, I'm going to go. And she's like, no, why don't you come and move to Auckland and, you know, you can try it up here. And then I, I flew up to Auckland and looked at houses and I was like, no, I'm going to resign. And then so then when Van unfortunately announced their restructure and said we're going to have to lay off 60 people, I was like, hey, mm. hey, I'll, I'll go and I'll, I'll, help, I'll help lots of people, you know, find jobs. And so yeah. I set up Talent Army as a conduit to help people find jobs. Um, but in the tech sector. Mm. In the That's tech startup specific. sector. So it was, yeah. yeah. Um, and I remember, it was, so I didn't have a business plan. I didn't have anything. It was purely, yeah. I'm going to help these people find jobs. And so mm. I, I quickly set up Talent Army as a vehicle just to help them find jobs. And then I started doing that and I was thinking, this is so fun. You know, this is just, I really enjoy the clients that I'm dealing with. And yeah. I was really fussy about, no, nah, you don't want to work there, so I'm not going to work with them. You know, like mm. it's a horrible environment. Right. I know a lot about their culture. You know, you don't want to work there, you know. And yeah. so, and then I remember sitting around thinking, shit, oh, I've got a company now. I better come up with a business plan. And, and I wrote down my business plan was um, the Jerry Maguire methodology, I called it, <laughs> which is not show me the money. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, which is what, whenever I say that, people are like, what the fuck? No, yeah. it's when he quits, right? Yeah, it's <laughs> less, right. Yeah, it's okay. less clients, more business. You know, and, and he talks about having that, yeah. you know, like, and that, the hugs that he has with his, you know, with his yeah. clients and likes. And I, so for mine was, I want to work with less companies and I want to do more of their business. And I, want, I, I want to have a, a real relationship because that was what was missing for me in recruitment was mm. the, you know, there was just bullshit everywhere. You know, no one, right. they didn't really know anything. They wouldn't know anything about your recruit, business if they were recruiting for you. They're just flicking your CVs. And so, yeah, it was, uh, I'm going to take this as an approach. Um, and so then, yeah, so Telenomy was born. We when were pretty, was this? What year? 2014, actually. Same, right. Yeah, oh, same nice. year. Yeah. Um, awesome. Yeah, and so I nice. think I, like, I freelanced initially around a little bit on my own before I set up Telenomy, mm. did some work via Sam. You know, Sam mm. introduced me to a few companies mm. and the likes. Um, and then, um, yeah, and then t- Telenomy's been successful. You yeah. know, we've, we've done well. We've not had to make a single sales call. You know, in the seven years that we've started, you know, set up business, which that's a good indicator. That's incredible. That's yeah, for a recruitment yeah. company, it's pretty insane. Things yeah. that most recruitment companies you spend four hours each Monday and each Friday, you know, on sales calls. So, what makes you different, though? I How, think, can you unpack that now, looking backwards? Yeah, I think authenticity is is right. the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. So, and I was very authentic, authentic about my personal brand. Right. And the, and this is the challenge that I have now is that I have a brand. Talent mm-hmm. Army has a brand. And I find that there's the challenge because a lot of people do want to deal with me or my brand, yeah. but I'm trying to say, well, now, you know, I'm very fortunate that I've hired these amazing people that joined Telenami and we have a, a fantastic brand. But I think it was, I think it was authenticity that I wasn't going to lie or cheat to people. I was going to be very open about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I knew my clients because it was less clients, more business. I knew enough about my clients to tell their story. And this is why I was like really interested to chat with you because for me, the art of recruitment is storytelling. Mm. If I can, if I can say, hey, and, and this is usually how I'll start a call with a candidate. If I say to them, hey, I'm working with this company uh, and they'll say, all right, um, what's the job? And I'll say, well, let me tell you their story first because it talks okay. to yeah. their, it talks to this particular role. And so I'll say, let's go back eight years ago when mm. Optimal Workshop first started, you know, and this was their mission this is why the company was started. This is why it was born because there was something that was broken in the industry and, and Andrew Mayfield, I'm using this as an example, Andrew Mayfield saw this and thought, we can do this better, you know? And then so, and then how they've evolved is they've gone down this path and they built this mm. culture of business and that culture of self-management and self-assembling teams has got them to this point, right? And then the next part of their journey is X and X leads to why and the reason why this role is so critical because it te- it takes yeah. this path that we're on now and really enables this new direction or this business unit to go on and so mm. I think if you're able to authentically tell the story about your client without you know in recruitment yeah. without laughing without lying um, or bullshitting you know most recruiters will just give you they've got like buzzword bingo right so mm. they give you 20 <laughs> words you know and they're like this is dynamic you know this role's dynamic right. it's scaling yeah. it's you know this company's awesome you know mm. and they'll just reel it off until you say okay i'll take but i think for me i've been able to articulate the story with like it was my own story and so mm. and, and, and people so people believe me right because it's true and yeah. they they get caught up in that and they say i want to be a part of that story you know, and so it's not the necessarily the widget of the role that I'm trying to talk to them about because the role part's easier, right? You can either do the job or you can't. Yeah. I'm not necessarily looking for 100% of skill sets. I'm looking for people that are able to take that role and take the next part of the story. And so they might be growing in their role mm. and they might be perfect fit for their role. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that's, looking back, that's why. And I think um, secondary to that is that 
that day of interviewing candidates, I made the decision that if I ever had my own business, I wouldn't hire, no matter how painful it was, unless people shared my vision of what the industry should be. You mean hire for Talent Army? Yeah. Yeah, for your It's been hard growing Talent Army because of that. Like, it's been exceptionally hard to find people that are integrity-driven, you know. Mm. you, You talked about this before. I think the art of being good in recruitment and probably good in any business is... Half your brain needs to be scientific, half your brain needs to be creative. You know, and so in recruitment, the creative part of your brain is right, understanding who your client persona is, the client story is. How do I then, what's the, the candidate persona that they're looking for, right? And so how do I articulate that and how do we find that and what do we, how do I be creative about looking for that online, whether it's using social media or marketing oh, or yeah. design or, you know, storytelling. And then the scientific part of your brain is, well... How am I going to find that person? Where do they live? What search strings can I use? Mm. What what time of the day is the best time to approach people? You know, is is what medium for this particular field is the best? Okay. If they're a developer, I probably want to go into Slack at this particular time of the day because that's when they're going to be spending more time in Slack with less time working. You know, are they going to repo on at that time? So I shouldn't go, I shouldn't approach them at that time. So there's there's lots of elements of how to do it. And so yeah, I've been really fussy about. Um, who I hire and it's cost me growth exceptional right. growth I could probably hire you know I was talking to Dan my business partner yesterday and I said you know you probably need to hire five people right now and he said I'd love to you know and he said but we just can't you know and so yeah because mm, the cost of hiring the wrong person right is exactly so high everything we've done can be undone with with two phone calls from a recruiter lying you know and cheating mm-hmm. and so what's the scale of it at the moment though where are we at with Talent Army what's so we have but we have seven people in Wellington now, four, five in Auckland. Right. Um, and I think we'll always be boutique-y um, yeah. in terms of I don't want to be a big global business, but we are inundated with work. And I'm really, my what keeps me awake at night at the moment is how much pressure my team are under. Yeah. You know? right. and, and That's so, a hard size too because it's like right sort of at that point yeah. where you are kind of growing. Mm. And it sounds like it's stressful for you as the founder to still be, because it sounds like you're doing a lot of the work yourself, yeah, the yeah. recruitment work as well. Yeah, indeed, yeah. So stepping out of that and then thinking about the, the growth of the business and how to, mm. how to resource yeah. that and, and what direction to do to, to make those decisions in. It's, mm. it's really hard when you're juggling the, the needs of your, your people too, because, yeah, I so resonate with what you say about people being everything yeah. about business and life yeah. <laughs> in general. Getting, yeah. getting the right people is just... The absolute and the key. pressure then of paying them having enough work to pay them which yeah so you don't but in other situations you do but also the culture that you create for them mm. are they being their best selves are they enjoying it mm. are they being filled uh, rather than being oh i've got another day of work mm. Yeah. Mm. and then being able to take that pressure off because it isn't just about salaries or it yeah. isn't just about the work it's about balance and having people's needs being met too right so mm. like if they're constantly under the pump and they're not getting breaks and they're working at all hours, you know. And then they look back and they go, like, I love my job, but I just don't have anything else yeah. <laughs> about me that yeah, I can, yeah. yeah, that I can look Worst at. Worst enemy. Yeah. yeah. Do you have an idea of what Talent Army looks like finished? <laughs> or do you That's have a like a 500-year plan? Like our friends up in Zealandia have a five hundred year plan. So yeah. do you have like a legacy idea? I definitely don't have a five hundred I don't even have a five year plan. I okay. do, I do have a, f- a rough, you know, skeleton five year plan of what Telanami looks like. Um Telanami uh, at the moment I'm in the transitional stage of slowly stepping out of Telanami. And mm. so I've got a general manager, hey James Wood. 
coming and joining me on Monday. <laughs> James is the, um, an ex-recruiter who was Chief Revenue Officer at Optimal Workshop formerly. And so, um, awesome. Yeah, he's going to be fantastic. Um, no pressure, James. Um, <laughs> and so he's joining on Monday. And so that'll enable me to change my role. I really love recruiting, right? Yeah. And so what I've identified over the last couple of years is I actually enjoy, I love starting business. Yeah. I'm a hype guy where I'll like come in, I can create a business, I can stand it up, I can yeah. market it, I can mm. influence, I can win customers, I can create something cool. Once it gets to the point where it's running and it's vanilla, I'm not that person anymore. And, yeah. uh, and that's been a realization I've had over the last two years that's been costly and that I've made mistakes and I've been the handbrake on certain things because I haven't replaced myself quick enough. Mm. Right, and so, yeah. That's that's what I'm doing with Talent Army now. That's what I'm doing with a couple of other companies that I've got. You know, I'm putting people in faster to run them, and I'm not going to be the the point person anymore because, yeah, you know, I'm not great at running business. Mm. Um, I'm great at I'm probably a really good board member. You know, like mm. I can pick things apart and come in quickly. But well, you're the catalyst at the beginning, right? Yeah, mix the spark and makes it all happen. Yeah, and so yeah. that is just so great that you recognise that because. Yeah. So many people end up in these positions yeah. and then they, they really suffer because they think it's them that's the problem, but it's actually yeah. the role yeah. or like the environment or the, the fact that they're just, they're just not the right fit. And the worst thing is, is I've been really good at telling clients, founder clients over the years that, hey, you know, maybe your role, you know, you'd be really careful right. about, are you in the right role now? And where I should have had a mirror in front of me at the time while I was doing it. Because, um, You're always yeah. the hardest person to get through to. Yeah, and you need to walk through it as well yourself oh, to get yeah. the other side. Now you can tell that story and now it has more legitimacy. Yeah. Because, yeah, just like me, I was where you were, blah, 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 versus, yeah. no, you shouldn't be there. It's like, what do you know? <laughs> you know. To answer your question, Talent Army will, in five years, stay true to its roots. We'll only work with companies that we want to work with as a business. Nice. We'll say we'll continue to say no to more customers that we say yes to. Mm. Um, but we will we'll be a recruitment company the size of thirty people is where okay. I see it, um, and no bigger. And then uh, start that cap. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think and I think that's one thing people need to learn in business is that you know. Do what you do really well, mm-hmm. amazing. You know, do yeah. find that your niche, find your space, right, and mm-hmm. really just and especially if it fills your cup, right. Like find that thing that that brings you joy and business, and do it really, really well. And you know, I don't want to be like I look at these other recruitment companies, you know, that are global big businesses. I don't, I don't want that because it loses mm-hmm. for me the essence of what why I started telling I'm in the first place. You know, and so mm. that's cool. What about you and Five and Dime? Speaking of podcasts, just really quick before we go there, go just thinking about what you were saying about people finding their, their dream jobs or fu- finding a way to express themselves that fills their cup. I was listening to a podcast a while ago now, but my partner used to work for this company in the States called Otterbox, which oh, yeah. is a cell phone case company. They, they, they yeah. claim to be the most um, resilient cell phone cases that you can buy. And the, found, uh, the CEO talked about the fact that he, he's much more willing to send people who he, he feels like are at risk of, of potentially being stuck in a role that they don't want to be in for ages because they just get stuck in you know, day-to-day kind of treading water to professional development opportunities, even though it's going to cost the business you know, extra in terms of you know, that, that professional development budget because he knows that if they 
they do stuff like that, then they'll be closer to realizing what they actually want. Yeah. And then they'll move on. Yeah. And I think that was such a huge lesson for me. Yeah. It's like, I'd rather stay really small as a business and find people who really align with what we're doing. Because it is, I mean, we, we have been pushing shit uphill a lot mm. for the last five, seven years of working in the space of, you know, maybe we don't need to earn as much profit. Maybe we can yeah. <laughs> um, put some of this into impact. And that doesn't sit well with everyone. So, so. Yeah. It's a collective? Is it, or is it, it, it kind of is. I mean, it's, it is privately owned, so it's myself. And actually, Sam Gadd has shares in Five and Dime, which yeah. is amazing to have her support. And, mm-hmm. But she's very hands-off, and she's mm-hmm. obviously done so well running Humankind and, mm-hmm. and then starting up Ken, and now she's working on an employee experience design school. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, we've, we basically have a partnership model. So we've got a core team of those four of us, five of us, actually, five of us now, and then we go and find the right skills depending on what the projects, the nature of the project mm-hmm. is, the nature of the work. Um, that old adage, if, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But is it a challenge uh, around the market here in New Zealand, or Wellington and New Zealand, uh, being so small around social impact or social entrepreneurship, but also then that they don't have as much money as the big boys and girls out yeah. there, the more corporates. Yeah. Is that a challenge for you? Yeah, it is and it isn't. I think okay. the there is definitely that that narrative that people with you know purpose have less money. But I think right. you know the, the more and more that we realize that these problems aren't going to be solved and with using the same solutions that we okay. have been using, the more I think corporates and government and you know a lot of the incumbents are realizing that they actually need to be investing and they need to be shown to be making the right steps. Mm-hmm. Um, in alignment with you know some of the big commitments that we've made as mm. humans living together on this crazy mm. complex planet. So, and I think you can have ethical companies without. I'm an ethical company written on the box, right? Like, yeah. and I think that's what we're seeing now. Is yep. I'm seeing like a lot of startup fintech companies that I'm you know that are really ethical. You know, like the totally. the mission that they have at the start is like is really cool. Cheers you know? is a great example yeah. of that. You know, there's like companies that are doing really, really well with a great like modus operandus and a great vision and a great mission. And so yeah, mm. they started right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I don't think like people... Like all birds or something. Yeah. Like that. yeah. Yeah. It doesn't need to have like sustainability, you know, like where, you know, everything written on the box. You know, I totally. think if you've got the right people with the right values, you know, like there's, there's good profitable, you know, business out there. Totally. Behind. Yeah, I mean, just thinking about sharesies, I mean, they're Trojan horsing the, fin- the fintech industry because they are fundamentally reshaping the system, giving you know, everyday people the ability to access share markets that they would never be able to access and, and making it super accessible, democratizing yeah. that. Mm-hmm. And so that's Kogo, incredible. Like what Kogo is doing, yeah. you know, like, mm-hmm. it's, there's, look, there's, I mean, there's probably 12 companies that I can't talk about that I'm in India that are doing really cool stuff, mm-hmm. you know, like in, yeah. coming out of Wellington. So I think the market's definitely changing to mm. people who want purpose-driven business now and, you know, like, uh, and I think the world's changing, you know, like as yeah. we see these big Facebooks and, and the likes, you know, like I saw, an, I read an interesting article on, on the way here this morning about s- someone attacking Facebook, you know, saying that they're, they're taking over the world and blah, 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 you know, as they stand up reels and all these things. Um, and I think there's that push away from that big tech company now. And so, like, mm. but in saying that though, you know, like I'm, I deal with a lot of big tech companies that are doing it really well. Yeah. And so I was just going to mention Amazon in the same 
kind of vein of you know people kind of going okay i'm gonna go more boutique but then amazon or aws just invested a stupid amount of money mm. in new zealand mm. in the tech sector right and yeah. that's gonna i suppose be a good thing or yeah. probably drip down at some point you're gonna see the impact of that in yeah i mean i'm an optimist yeah you know so obviously good things what, what i see really what I love personally about the tech sector is the remote working element now where people who, you know, mm. can take a, a job with, you know, like I've got lots of clients that are Australian headquartered, US headquartered companies paying good salaries to remote people in New Zealand mm. that can't necessarily afford to buy a house in Wellington that can take this job now and move out to, you know, the Hawke's mm. Bay or they move out to Palmerston North where they're, you know, wherever they're from and buy a house now and live a, live a good life, yeah. you know, because, and get on the ladder, you know, and I think that's massive. That's, that's massive, yeah. Yeah, for most people who are just trying to get what you would describe in that happiness for them is a threshold of security, house for their kids, and that's it. Mm. So, yeah, sorry. Mm. No, 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 no. I, I was curious when you were talking about the, the subject of remote working and flexibility and all these things, and, and then you mentioned your, your journey and being... A child who struggled with mm-hmm. it sounds like um, pov- poverty. I would I, I don't know if that's mm-hmm. too too strong of a word to use based on the fact that you said you were stealing to put food on the table, which mm-hmm. is I'm so sorry. How do you think that that your your own personal experiences, especially during childhood and sort of early family dynamics and things like that, influence you as an adult going into the world, looking at these mm-hmm. systems and kind of choosing to work for certain organizations or choosing to spend your money in certain yeah. kinds of ways. Uh, I think it absolutely shapes you, right? Like if, you, if you're, a, if you're a, um, a student of psychology, then you'll realize that the, the child that you, that, that the, the child that you grow up in and then the, the things that you learn or the challenges that you have, I think you're, you're naturally trying to reflect them in helping others before you'll help yourself. Mm. And I think that's part of your journey in life is that you, you know, once you, I think, you start realizing them because that's naturally how you've been living your life. And mm. so I've tried to help people grow and help people raise great, make money and help people be successful before I was doing it for my own self. You mm. know, and I think, yeah, that's definitely shaped my life. And, um, and a lot of that, and, and like having empathy for people that, you know, that, you know, life can get better if you, you know, if you want it to, and if you ask for some help. And so, yeah, mm. yeah. yeah, yeah, that's, that's, I see that all the time in companies and teams, especially because I think there's, to your point about the way people label themselves or, the way, or having a very ethical value proposition versus just having a value proposition that's maybe more functional or sort yeah. of market driven. And then what actually sits behind that is, is a whole different set of values and maybe there's not that kind of translation. Mm. But that's okay because the market ne- doesn't necessarily need to need to buy into those ethics mm. to be able to realize that this is a great solution mm. to their problem. And I, yeah, it's just an interesting, it's such an interesting space because we, we are seeing more and more people come mm. through in, into situations where they can't buy houses, mm. you know, they can't find jobs, they see their family struggle, yeah. and it's putting that power kind of system and structure into the forefront yeah. for a lot of people. And if you throw in the fact that they, you know, like every time you pick up a newspaper, there's some 
some guy telling you about how you can buy a house using your parents' money and, you know, I'm not sure if you saw this guy on TikTok the other, the other day. He was like, if you want to buy a house, you need 20% deposit. So that's 160000 if we're talking about this house. So you get $80,000 that you save and then you get $80,000 from your parents and then you go out and buy a house. And I was like, my dude. That's simple. My dude, you know, like you yeah. are not in the world that we are living in mm-hmm. currently with like lots of people. And so there's, I, I see it every day. I see the social pressure of what storytelling, right? to a degree does because people are out there on social media telling this story showcasing who they are trying to be this unauthentic version of themselves which is putting pressure on society that's seeing that you know and feeling that they can never get ahead and feeling and then giving up almost before they even start Mm. you know there's so many people now that say to me i'm never going to be able to afford to buy a house and i'm like well if you say that you probably never will right like it's You've got to well, there's also somewhere. the conditions. You know, some people are literally saying, "I can't because I'm a single person, and therefore I'm not a double income yeah. household." And looking around, and I don't have savings. So it's like, but it's also the spectrum. If it does feel like the spectrum of societal wealth, however you deem that, has just been stretched so to ex- extreme. So we know that the billionaires are getting more richer mm. on the one end. Yeah. They're just like massive, but also we're getting more poor people. Uh, and it's just being stretched, so the, the middle is becoming thinner, that's all. Um, but the, the extremes are also being stretched, and that's not good for society. I think, I think the ends need to be conflated somewhat. Yeah. You know, These need to be brought up, these need to be brought down. How you do that, that's a whole other kind of question. Mm. But well, actually, Japan is a really great example, because right. I love looking at references from different, different data points, but yeah. Japan has some really interesting progressive tax policies, but they also have this intergenerational wealth um, mm. sort of transition scheme where by after three years they're trying to they're trying to take the money from you know people who would traditionally pass it down to their families and basically it gets put back into the system so mm. they've got the biggest biggest percentage of the middle class in any of the developed countries gotcha. across the world so, so they're trying to 70 out because they yeah, seventy yeah. percent of their middle class own, basically earn seventy percent of the wealth. Wow! Yeah, that's massive. Yeah, yeah, and it's in part because of that three. Wow. You have to check that out. Three-year intergener- mm. sorry, three-generational, intergenerational tax. Well, there's there's something to be said about you know also the the kind of the Swedish and Finnish models around wealth as a, as a kind of portion of income. Mm. So what I'm trying to say very badly is. If you drive in Finland, I think, or Sweden, and you break the law in terms of the speeding, you don't get fined 100 bucks, which is standardized no matter what your mm. income is. You get a percentage of your income mm. as the that thing. So if you're a billionaire and you get caught, you're going to get hit with millions versus if literally I only make a 50 grand, 40 grand a year, right? It's just a 2% or whatever that month you're going to have to pay us. Which still is horrible, but it's still like, oh, that makes sense. Mm. It's a sliding scale because not everybody should be treated the same when it comes to um, our own wealth and poverty versus poverty and stuff. It's just fascinating how other countries approach it. Japan will have to check that out. Yeah, I was just thinking about that example. It's a very equitable way of dealing with punishment because you can't treat people the same when it comes to punishment. You have no idea. One person might be driving to the hospital (laughs) because they have to get there because they've got an emergency and another person Mm -hmm. might just be breaking the the law for the sake of it. But regardless of of their own personal decisions, it's also really interesting to see that relativity around there. Well, if you're you're a billionaire and you know it's only 100 bucks (laughs) to get caught speeding, whatever. 
Mm. You know, what was um, it? Jerry Seinfeld. I'm a fan of his. I think mm. hilarious. And he has an amazing collection of Porsches, and he just drives around Manhattan and parks anywhere because he said it's easier for me to just get a parking ticket. You know, right. and so he just doesn't bother paying the meter anywhere, and then he'll just pick up his parking ticket. So there's like a, a yeah. thing online of Jerry ticket, Jerry Seinfeld getting parking tickets, and <laughs> and I think you know similar like, thing. Yeah, yeah like, interesting. He like so fucking. Charge him more. <laughs> you know, yes. like make it, you know. Magic yeah. rules proportionally. So, yeah. You probably think twice. Yeah. I think back in the Nordic states, and I, I don't know which one, Finland, Sweden, Norway, one of those, also have a weird one around, in a good way, about disincentivizing people from speeding. So mm-hmm. how they would do that in most countries is you would find people. You set up cameras, you find them. But what this country, I think it's uh, Norway or Finland, um, they not only record people who are breaking the law, but also people who aren't. And all the funds that they collect from people who are breaking the law goes into like a lottery, and they choose like a, a someone who is driven good wow. for that thing. And they get so they invent incentivizing people to not break the law because you could get rewarded for it. Hmm. And, and this is where I think the, the thinking should be around like how we allocate funds in mm. government, right? And so yeah. like so that, that we have a housing crisis at the moment. You know, which is the, the biggest thing in the world. So, and what I can't get my head around is why can't we, as people that are first-time buyers, right? That if you're trying to buy your first house, then the tax portion of your salary should be allocated to your housing, like your mm. deposit, right? Yeah. So that it goes into a government fund or whatever it may, may be, and they can earn interest on it. You know, yeah. and they can do whatever they want with it. But when you're ready to make your your first home, that you can then access that tax that you've paid, like that you've paid to be able to allocate to your yeah. home. And so, that's clever, dude. Rather than spending, it. you know, like stupid amounts of money building houses and things like that, right? Yeah, like, yeah. And, it, and it'll give us, it'll give people like that. All right, they'll know that they can start saving. You know, they. Yeah. And, but yeah, I think the allocation mm. of government funds is broken. You know, and how we're doing it. And mm. yeah. You know, when I hear things like that, I mean, the, the Nordics are fantastic, right? You know, like they're like yeah. love heart eyes every time you hear about them. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. education, how they approach it, or even, you know, uh, civics, but also right through to prisoner welfare and yeah. things like that. And it's, it's amazing. Yeah. It's like, oh, how they got it. Mm. And you can't just rely on us, different cultures. Like, they're humans. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we're we're yeah. all the same, right? And culture, again, is just story. And yeah. we can rely on a traditional story to say that's our culture. It's like, cultures can change you know yeah. it's up to you what you believe the story to be and how much resonance you put on it or emphasis mm, mm. so yeah, yeah we have lost touch with that with very indigenous and ancient cultural stories that mm. i think we we were so reliant on you know as humans early civilizations yeah. to make meaning of our lives and i think that some of these examples that you've used mm. they do have more of a of a entrenched kind of worldview that is more similar to that traditional way of yeah telling stories or relating to stories. And it's interesting because I was thinking about having a baby soon, thinking about the gender story and the sex story, and mm. we've, we've not really, we've not found out what we're having, and it, it couldn't, I couldn't care less. But that's, it's a funny story that people ask, you know, every time you meet someone, it's like, oh, so what are you having? It's like the first sort of qualifier yeah. that they ask you, you know. And in Sweden, I think they also have a term for basically a non-binary pronoun called okay. hen so in okay. in schools they say they they call everyone by that pronoun hen instead of him or her that's cute which is More an interesting yeah but it's an interesting kind of 
thing when you think about your early childhood experience and mm. how that then shapes you as an adult mm, of and course, yeah. you know um, thinking about these cultures that have more of a sort of a high context way of relating to fluid, the environment right? and, and open. yeah and thinking about how you might raise your child if you've got a child that eats and sleeps and and sort of you know has these really regimented schedules they'll probably be raised in a way mm. that is very dependent on schedules mm. on r- rhythm and routine as opposed to maybe in a high context environment mm. or a high context culture where things are maybe more fluid mm. <laughs> people aren't put in boxes yeah. you're much more sort of incentivized and your mm. story that you're relating to is is one of oh well it's it, it depends on who i'm with and mm. what what time of day it is or is not as important as am i feeling hungry am i feeling tired yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah, which babies do very well, I heard. Yes. <laughs> They'll tell you that. Are you feeling the pressure of how you should raise your baby yet? Ah, oh, yeah. I mean, always, I think. You always feel the pressure when, you've, when you hit these milestones. Even when you don't hit milestones, you, you still feel a lot of pressure. And I think I've actually been really good at not, not kind of getting too overwhelmed by, mm. by that. Although There's a really good podcast, um, How Not to Fuck Up Your Kids. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the realisation in that podcast, and you know, as he says, we all fuck up our kids yeah. you know, like in certain ways. And the more you try, the more you're probably fucking them up. And so, yeah. It's a Philip Larkin poem, that's that, which is, they fuck you up, your mum and dad, but they were fucked up in their turn. With, yes. Yeah, and stuff like yeah. <laughs> It's a beautiful poem about how much they, you know, they were fucked up, so they're going to fuck you up. Yeah. Going back to, I think, one of the first conversations that we started having around leadership and mm. modeling the kind of leaders that you want to see in the world yeah. or the kind of behaviors that you want to see in the world and being a natural leader as a result of that, mm. I think is really applicable to parenthood. It's like, I think that's probably one of the yeah. biggest areas in your life you can be a leader. Mm. And that's something that I think not, 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 not enough people realize is that relationship that they have with their child and how, mm. they, how they model dynamics is really critical for their child's development and, mm. and obviously that's going to have a huge impact on the world. You know, yeah, you're you shaping know. a little human. Yeah, a really mm. destructive creature. <laughs> or constructive. Mm. Or constructive, yeah. You know, the you optimist. might have a baby who solves cancer right there. Yeah, yeah. Think about that, that's weird. It's wonderful. Yeah, but not buying into that pressure too, I think, yeah. as well. You know, I don't know if you if you had this the sense when you were a child when you sort of thought about what you wanted to do with your life and just became a little bit overwhelming you know and it's easy just to pick yeah, the things that sounded cool like astronaut or a firefighter yeah. or you know and then thinking about the actual career path to get into that or what that means yeah. from a kind of a, a full context perspective it's like a volunteer firefighter versus you know <laughs> going to space like how many people actually get to go to space yeah. not many i mean more and more <laughs> as the private space that's more about market develops right? but, yeah and fostering that in young younger humans totally. about exploration being curious about what, what what would it be in scale i'm going to make a mask now i'm going to float around pretend and stuff and they enact things yeah. for to counter their reality and that's how they figure out their reality but that's, i think that's your job as a parent is to be able to foster is to be able to like help them continue to have that imagination for as long as possible because ultimately as we become older Mm. you lose that ability and then you feel trapped and you know you feel like i can't change my job now i can't be an astronaut now Mm. i can't do these things now and i you know i see it all the time people that are courageous enough to like go back to actually what they wanted to do you know 
Yeah, uh, go back to school or something, right? Yeah. And change their whole career. I was going to say, how many people come back to you again and again, career change-wise? All or, the time. Or yeah. if, if, if I often ask people just to get a bit more of a sense when I'm interviewing them, a bit more of a sense of their character and their sort of person is like, what would you actually want to do if you could choose any job? You know, and, mm. and mm. some of the things that I hear is, you know, fun, like phenomenal. You mm. know, but, but a lot of people just don't do it. Or they'll a career contractor because they need the money and they want to do all these things, but they can't and the likes. And so I think that's our job as parents, mm. you know, is to, as long as you possibly can, let your child believe that they can do anything that they want, you know, mm. and but give them the realization that it's hard, you know, to get there because, and you've got to expose them to as much as, or as little as they want, you know, like mm. expose them to things so that they can try it and see what they like. And, yeah, you know, mm. it scares the shit out of me, you know, like my, my kids, you know, me putting my pressures onto them or my, my, you know, my decisions, my life regrets and, and projections and, as well yeah. for them because you think yeah. oh, you're really good at that you should be doing that yeah i'm really on like one mm. one thing i decided as a father early on i said that i'm going to be um absolutely honest with my kids and i think that's because my parents mm. weren't honest with me about mm. things you know and so you're sort of cyclical how they fucked me up that way i'm going to fuck my kids up this way right and so yeah. i'm going to be super fucking honest you know and so and but it's but it's developed a really cool trusting relationship between, especially my daughter now who's 12, turning 13, Ugh. she can ask me anything she wants. She knows that I'm going to give her the, the answer and she knows that I'm going to tell her the truth, which was awesome until she asked me about sex. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> and then I told her, she was like, holy fuck, dad. Yeah. But, um, but, like, mm. but what, what it's done now and, what, I, and what, I, what brings me joy is that she can come to me about anything and she often Absolutely. does, you know, and she asks mm. me little things and so that's... That's fundamentally, as a father, like what I what I want, and then I want to mm. guide them and do this. And but shit, am I, am I making it up as I'm going on? Shit, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> Aren't we all? Yeah, yeah but you got a foundation. It sounds like that yeah. relationship. Yeah. That's the foundation that you need. Yeah. Because then things will occur in a good way and bad, probably. Yeah. But that's life, right? Mm. Yeah, indeed. You that have is a good foundation. Fruits as well of your modeling. Like you're being honest with her, and she's yeah. being honest with yeah. you, which is yeah. exactly mm. what you want. You don't want her to lie or yeah. not yeah. tell you stuff that's going to be potentially risky for her. You hope, that's right? Yeah. Going back to your mention about asking people what they would do if they could just do anything. Yeah. Yeah. There's been an interesting thing uh, that I read recently about COVID and its impact on people's careers. Yeah. And the uh, big, and I think they're calling it the big unresigning or resign resignation across and mainly in the US how many people have resigned from their jobs since COVID started yep. is phenomenal mm. so we're seeing a societal shift of people just going not doing that yep. you know because they're realizing when they had the lockdown or the breaks they started to engage their creativity pick mm. up the yeah. curious things that they mm. never had time to do yep. uh, now they've got an excuse at their home and they're going nah I don't want to my sweat equity needs to go elsewhere yeah uh, have you seen the results yeah. of that here yeah. in New Zealand? Yeah. yeah, I've seen so many people retrain. I've seen so yeah. many people right. go into Dev Academy because they've always wanted to be a developer, yeah. you know, yeah. and they're now doing it. Um, I've seen, and and I also see now. I also see it with clients when they uh, they have exits. So you'll see these software companies that get bought bought out. Everyone gets a lot of money out of it because yeah. of this, and you see them go. Holy shit! I can now do this. You know, I've got now. Mm. I'm now my. I can pay some money on my mortgage. You know, I wait. I've got two years where I don't have the stress, and I can now go and do this. And so, there's that element of people that have the financial security to be able to do it. But there's also a lot of people that have just realised that, like you said before, during COVID, you know, 
I'm not happy, you know, mm. and mm. I've just started oil painting again because I've got time now and I love being creative again. And so, yeah, I, I've seen that a lot. It uncovered, yeah, a lot. Have you noticed yeah, that? Yeah, well, actually, one of our clients is Shoe School in Newtown. Right. And so they're the only shoemaking, craft shoemaking uh, training organization mm-hmm. in New Zealand. And, and I think in Australia as well. They have people from Australia coming, well, before COVID. Mm. They had people travel from Australia to come and learn how to make shoes, and they've just had a huge influx of people deciding oh. that they want to make shoes. Awesome. Yeah. That's random. Have, yeah. Have you, what have you guys done since, or what have you done since COVID? Have you taken something up? Like, has it been something that's reignited, like a passion? No, actually, other than getting pregnant. Yeah. I mean, that was a big life change decision. <laughs> um, we started a, oh, I actually started another kind of business sort of side offering for from the storytelling work that we do which is a creative brand or creative day sprint so it's taking a kind of a a startup sprint kind of methodology and delivering creative outputs within a day and so that that was something that we developed in level four lockdown while we were sort of we lost a bunch of work and um, I just got back from a trip to Costa Rica actually it was Mm. I was on a bit of a soul-searching mission and went and did some incredible psychedelics in the jungle (laughs) and came out of that with like a whole nother perspective on life and connection and values and all the stuff and realized that I didn't want to make as much money I sort of you know wanted to free up time um and yeah created this created this little side offering which has gone really well and Mm. that's the um, nine to five right the nine to five yeah yeah and it's it's an experiment nine to five you do the whole sprint. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's designed for startups or for teams that are trying to iterate on a brand. Yeah. Um, and eventually we'll sort of we've got we've done a website version and we've, we want to do a video version as well, Jono. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, just giving people um, really high quality creative outputs because it's been smushed through a really condensed process. So you had the creative. Like you had the time to be creative about that? Was yeah. that something you've been thinking about for a while? Or is it no, not really. I mean, I've, I've been thinking about how to take a product to market for a while yeah. because I work in this like, service business and it's, yeah. everything kind of looks slightly different. <coughs> when, we, when we work with our clients, you know, yeah. obviously we're trying, to, we're trying to solve their problems. So, yeah, mm. we've, we've got a slightly different approach depending on the brief. But this product business, or this product kind of idea has been turning around for a while. But lockdown gave me the space to to think about that. Isn't it funny, like we are both services businesses and like you fantasize about a product company that's repeatable and easy and you know, mm. to, like, you know, like, and then product people are like, oh my God, I fantasize about dealing with all these different customers yeah. and you know, like the creativity I could have if I'm dealing with this <laughs> and that. And so the grass is always green on the other side. I'm, oh. I've, I've been exactly the same as you. Totally. I've been building other companies, you know, like had the time to actually, you know what, mm. I can start thinking about other things that I want to do, product companies in particular, because I'm, the grass is greener on that side at the moment. Um, but it's, yeah, the time for me, like, to be able to just feel like I can just open my brain again and start thinking has mm. been mm. phenomenal. That's the thing that I love about working from home the most is that mm. during the day I can put the washing on and I can do this yeah. so while I'm on the phone to people. And yeah. so that once I finish work, I've actually done most of my chores and jobs. Yeah. And so yeah. I've got the time to actually do that. But on the other hand, I don't necessarily enjoy working from home every day. I like yeah. to be around people and be creative with bouncing yeah. off other people so mm. I agree do you I think I don't know if you remember but we had a conversation like right after we went into lockdown in March last year about Cold. about the the j- joyful experience of lockdown as mm. opposed to the sort of yeah, yeah. The, the sort of crisis mm. traumatic panic experience that I think yeah. a, like 
all of us were experiencing at some level, but obviously more mm -hmm. so than others, that comes from being either in a sort of a, a founder or being kind of in an agile st mm. tech startup or a startup kind of environment or being kind of a creative mm. a freelancer yep. who's used to the nature of work kind of being up and down and, yep. you know, and sort of having to be flexible mm. about that. Mm -hmm. We were talking about how suddenly the Brilliant world finds pause. themselves in a yeah. similar position <laughs> where everyone was in the unknown and everyone was sort That's of right. like, what does this mean for my career? What does this mean for my family? What does this mean for everything? It's like as a freelancer or as a creative, you are constantly playing in that space mm. of unknown. And Yeah, it's, it's quite lonely and then suddenly you're forced into this global community experiment where you're all on a global timeout. Mm. Humanity's on a global timeout mm. and we all had a shared experience of being anxious about something but equally everything went quiet mm. literally everything yep. went quiet we, li we literally in the first lockdown set up cultivate which is my other company which oh, is okay. hr consulting because of that you know like it was it was this thing that we've been thinking about for a while um like hr for tech startups um but then it was instantly there was a lot of fear there was a lot of worry there was yeah. redundancies there was this and i was like well there's no great time to start up a company in level four lockdown <laughs> yeah of course yeah because yeah. 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 everybody needs it yeah and we took down we took the path originally of like all right let's do it to support people as well yeah. you know like, and let's create let's do webinars let's do free mm -hmm. consulting let's bring a collective of people together that can that can help yeah. but yeah i like i love that like uh, crazy times like amazing things happen yeah you know, i think yeah Stress is stress is a wonderful and horrible thing, you know, mm. that, that creates diamonds, you know. Yeah. There's that tension, yeah, I was going to say it, yeah. in, in terms of, like, it does, when you're being pulled out of the norm, it mm. creates straight away tension or stress or whatever, but also it does create a different way of viewing the world, of mm. interacting with the world or with people in it, mm. uh, friends, family, loved ones, whatever it is, mm. you're now on a different space and then that opens you up then because now you're in an open mindset because you're reacting to different mm. things mm. and then in theory if you can notice that you're more creative right mm. I, I hate the term because it's it's a rich white guy privileged term but um don't waste a recession you know like <laughs> don't waste a good recession yeah um, but i think for me like that term for me is more like all right well don't waste a, a moment of pain that yeah. you can really reflect on and start mm. to think about you know yeah. how you can evolve and change and so yeah. That's lockdown for me. The second time was fantastic. You know, it was phenomenal. The first time I was a little bit freaked out about companies yeah. and the likes, but we. I was after the first week. It turned out that it was going to be everything was going to yeah. be okay. We'd pivoted a few places, and yeah. um, but the second lockdown was just like wow. You know, yeah. like I've got all this time again to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do yeah. that. And so, yeah. well, this was a result mm. of the first lockdown. Ah, oh, awesome. You know, this format, this idea. Because I was like away from people, I like people like you, yeah. like connecting, and I wanted to again privilege white guy want to do a podcast. Yeah, so yeah. I was like, but I didn't <laughs> want to do it in a way that most people would do it, which is just chatting to people in terms of audio. I mean, yeah. I want to do something beautiful and weird. Uh, so this was the result. And the second lockdown, I got another idea, which we've shared, and and which is a product idea uh, as well. So uh, yeah, it's kind of going. It, it ignited a lot of and catalyzed a lot of latent creativity yeah. for me mm. it's Which nice is, it, yeah. like i guess one other way i'm thinking about this is that when you go when you experience crisis or trauma you can either obviously go into yeah. like a sort of a spiral of of negativity or you mm -hmm. can kind of have this operating system reset 
moment where you just go, you know what, I don't have to be that person anymore. Or I don't have to do yeah. that anymore. And like, yeah. what does the world look like now? And yeah. you know, what, what will I be able to create if I have no constraints? That's interesting because, yeah, I've noticed that some people have really struggled with the notion of the world has changed. And other people have gone, great, the world has changed. Now I can change with this. Give mm. me a reason too. It's almost reflective mm. uh, in some people's reasoning. Mm. Of, of course, I've got to do something mm. different because it's all different now. Do you, think, do, you think it's a, or do you think the world's changing way faster than it's ever changed before? And so it's really catching people out. I'm, I'm really fascinated about this topic because mm. like, we're, we're seeing some horrific things. You know, like, let, Let's yeah. be honest around... Like I, I read this, this morning, someone posted around, you know, a murder in London and how women are unsafe. And she was like, I really want all men to think about this thing. And then some guy came in and was like, not all men, blah, 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 you know, he called her off and started going off at her. And I just thought, man, like, take a minute, dude. Like, yeah, at, personal safety. At all, yeah. well, at, and let's be honest, like, at, at one stage in all of our lives as a man, we witnessed, heard something, you yeah. know, there's been derogatory or something to a woman and we've not said something or mm -hmm. we've, you know, like, and I'll be really honest, like, it, I have, you know, but now it's changed, right? Now, like, I'm yeah. like, who the fuck am I to, like, I'm not, I'm not that guy, I don't want to be that guy, I want to be, support people and yeah. I want to do this and so, and then we've got the COVID, you know, crazy people, you know, like, mm -hmm. like, you know, whatever, regardless of what your belief is in vaccination and anti-vaccine, you're entitled yeah. to your opinion. But the people that are just going crazy online, and I'm witnessing friends of mine in Melbourne, you sure, know, it's yeah. been of pretty course. intense in Melbourne, right? And so yeah. people are, are slowly just going crazy, you know, over there. I'm witnessing people just say some crazy weird stuff, yeah. you know, and it's like, and then next minute they're like, the world's changed this and that, you know, yeah. The world's changing really fast, right? And some people just don't handle change at all. Like, and and how do we do that? Like, well, how do we help people? And how do you? Mm. It's got to come down to technology in so many answers to the questions you posed there. Technology is a driver of change in yeah. the world, but it's also the way that we see the world changing faster than ever before because we have access to these, you know, mobile phones and things. So it's a duality uh, going on there. It's not just oh, the world is changing. It's like I'm part of this change and I can mm. see it and I can access it. But also there's a, a third wheel in there, which is I can actually post to the world about it. I can have an opinion on it. Before, let's be honest, you know, even 50 years ago, how did you have a, a voice? Well, round the table, down the pub, mm. your family at work, maybe. Soapbox. But yeah. that's it, yeah. really, you know. Um, and if you wanted to influence and have an influence, you had to like... There were traditional roots for that, I suppose. Not that that's right or wrong, but there was difference. Now, yeah, anybody can start anything on a TikTok and go down mm. to Melbourne and go, I'm in the riots and I'm going to kick something over which starts something else and it could be repositioned differently and other people could jump on like they've done with Jacinda on her Facebook Live things and that share anti-vax stuff. They kind of coordinate an effort and mm. bomb it in, in terms of that. So it's mad what can be done with the technology, but it's also technology, not just the digital form, but also the distribution as well. Mm. Like if you look at Amazon, right, and the technology that they've yeah. utilized just to the, that's what, that's why they're so efficient operationally, and that's yeah. why they've scaled. It's just because the technology exists too, mm. and then distribution and all that other stuff and database. So yeah, it's changing, and the way it's changing is changing us probably. Mm. Mm. And so this is a question I'd, I thought of, like, coming to this chat 
storytelling, right? Storytelling can be really amazing, but it can also be evil. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and there's storytelling for good, mm. and there's storytelling for bad. And I think what we're seeing more than ever now is the evil story storytelling. You know, you're getting these people that can jump on and create this bullshit story and narrative, you know, about this conspiracy theory or this, and and people are just joining into it now because they're so, so many more people are joining into it because they're so angry. You know, mm. they're so angry at government or they're angry at the world's changing or they're angry because you moved my fucking cheese, you know, like, yeah. and and now they're, they're jumping onto it. But, uh, but I, I, it worries me, right, that these <laughs> storytelling, you've got these crazy groups now that are hiring digital marketing people you know and yep. agencies to like to Just construct to a narrative right? yeah, yeah. so yeah it's yeah that's a fascinating one because i think thinking about the context of technology and the, the way we use technology and the way that we are like in the last 200 years is the majority of every single piece of technology that we have in our daily lives was yeah. created in the last 200 years so we are very very primal and very mm. very early stage evolution compared to the technology that we use and we yeah, are we're totally chimps at the with ma- forms, we're let's apes be with yeah we're apes with facebook <laughs> 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 and i think that has a huge a huge reason or a huge factor in in regards to the way that we are persuaded to think a certain way act a certain way and then you know obviously hopefully not influence people other people in that as well but unfortunately we do because of the technology that we have access to and the viewpoints that we wouldn't have had access to in the past because yeah there's a we've done a lot of research and there's stuff that's come out of the uk the common cause uh, foundation over there that uh, they also are a really big influencer of the workshop here in new zealand and they run training programs on narratives and how to construct narratives and dealing with issues like you know, climate change, dealing with issues like anti-vaccination, mm-hmm. how to kind of deconstruct those narratives and how to mm-hmm. understand the, the levers that you can pull on from psychology, from neuroscience, from our brains to, to help kind of spread the positive mm-hmm. or, or the helpful mindsets and sort of deprioritize the unhelpful mindsets because we are very emotionally driven creatures as humans mm-hmm. and we are... 98% operated by our subconscious. So if we get into a vulnerable position, we can easily adopt, you know, a mindset that's going to be really unhelpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think also being cognizant of that, of, of how much we're influenced by the subconscious, how much we're influenced by the technology and constructing narratives in a way that we can help hopefully lift people's gazes and mm. not focus on the the kind of unhelpful narratives and the unhelpful issues, but rather focus on the, what are we trying to achieve? You know, what's the vision here? What's the, mm. what's the kind of, and, and not in a necessarily an idealistic way, but understanding that we've all got, we've all got all sorts of different values that we have, yeah. that if, if we're being primed in a certain way, we can surface some values over others, like nice. yeah. power, achievement, success. Do you, th- do you think we're losing empathy? Do you think like, people are less empathetic now than they've ever been i do personally. i think so yeah. absolutely i, I think i think it's That's a fascinating i think okay, it's a societal do, thing right. because i think when we lived in community yeah we had a lot more connection yeah. we had a lot more empathy and empathy i think is just a, sh- a shortcut to really i can understand why you'd say that yeah totally and in some way definitely agree with it because of the community lack of i do believe we're innately good so our bias is always towards goodness as a human as a meat sack that we are. 
But you mm. talked earlier about like operating systems and stuff like that, and mm. all that. And I talked about technology. So everything's been updated as we've gone on in terms of a technological framework, our little phones update mm. and they tell us and our computers. We haven't really had an operating system upgrade for a while, mm. you know, as a, a set of humans and stuff. So we're running on old software when the hardware is updated massively. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that's the disconnect that we're starting to see now. Um, and I come back to when you talked about, well, what has been, how fast change is going on. I remember doing like, one of my, uh, I did a, an American degree, so I had majored and minored in something, if you know what that is, right? You do like a major. My major was communications mm -hmm. and media, and my minor was sports randomly. Yeah. But part of that was learning about the media system Mm. And because I was in the UK, the BBC was a big thing that we studied and it was established by Lord Reith and this guy. But they had the three things and it's still there today. The BBC has three purpose statements or purpose words, sorry, which is educate, inform and entertain. Those are the three things that exist to do. And I apply that now to media even to this day. And I think they're more entertainment and they don't really educate and inform in any good way as it, humans need it but if you remember back in the day when you watch old newsreels of things yeah there was like shit it bo dropping bombs and stuff yeah. and bad things but it was like look at this new technology you can now take something from there to there in 20 seconds and stuff like that and they celebrate it thank you very <laughs> yeah. much uh, but they celebrate new yeah. kind of wins in uh, for society and these and we've er eradicated whatever and things yeah. like that it's just like we'd never get any of the good stuff now that's mm. going on in the world with our media so I think there's a, that needs to be updated as an operating system as well. Yeah. And we need to seek that out or stop watching the news or get off Facebook or yeah. there's other stuff out there you can follow. How, how, how do you think it would change the narrative if the, your articles weren't allowed to have headlines? Ooh. How do you think it would change? Yeah, so because it's like I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in clickbait is killing us. You know, like yeah. it's just pulling us apart. You didn't right? have headlines. So if you didn't have headlines and you go on and you could just choose a topic and then just start reading articles on it, right? Like categories almost, right? Yeah. You'd have to go and then... Because... It'd the, be harder to, to find. Know, it would be. The, the, the headline is the hook. Like, yeah. that is yeah. the thing that, and that helps your brain understand whether this is going to be interesting or relevant for you. So I, yeah. think, I think the same thing would happen as it has. You know, eventually we would reinstate the headlines because people get so frustrated about getting sucked into something that they have to read or spend more time engaging with just to realize that this is not what I was looking for. And let's be honest, the first line would become the headline. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> true, be true. But I like your challenge about yeah, what so if for it me it's wasn't. Like, and I'm, uh, well, I guess what I'm trying to say, is, so if I agree with mm. something, I also try and read something that like the, dis like the disagreeing yeah. article as well. And mm. so I try to understand both sides of the narrative because I want to have empathy for why people have that opinion on something. And I don't want to shoot mm. their opinion down. And I think we're losing that ability to be able to have a, like a dialogue about a topic or have yeah. a, like yeah. a conversation with a topic without it getting super emotional and, and things straight away. Absolutely. So like for me, I just don't think that we, I think that we as human beings now, we're just, you know, we've got, you know, I'm going to get into crazy ideologies here, right? But, we are like in our little world so much yeah. and we've got, and it's, it's sectioned off now. It's got Fort Knox locks on it. Right. And yeah. you, you know, we're not letting other people in where we're not, we're letting other people in, but we're not. We're we only about tribe of yeah. that. And, so, and I think we're losing that ability to like, 
just read and understand and yeah. thirst, like have a thirst for knowledge on topics mm. and and have empathy for people like that your opinion may be really different to mine mm. but we don't need to like like harangue each other on social media yeah. about it and it does come i think you know the america is a lot with the greatest respects so have a lot to answer for in this regards yeah. from a perspective of um really champion the bipolarness you know in like they they talk about it's the greatest democracy in the world and yeah. all that stuff and it's like it's a dual system of yeah. you know red and blue yeah. and it's yeah. like well, that's not a democracy look at other democratic states and there's hung government that's a good thing yeah. again nordic states they have to yeah. then discuss and agree and and kind of uh, uh, kind of give a little bit and yeah. take a little bit back and stuff mm. and that's what the human condition is all about yeah you know mm. you never it's never black and white really it's very rarely black and white mm. so it's the grays that make it interesting but it's the grays that give us humanity yeah. you know if you look at other creatures in the world it's very black and white so i mm. so i i'm i made a big decision a couple of years ago um i i was get i was starting to get annoyed at people online because of like it was so sensationalized mm. on either side and i i'm in terms of politics and most things i'm centrist i just like to watch the world go by and agree with whatever's good right and i'll say yeah that's great i agree with that or that's great mm. i agree with that but i won't try and go down one left or right but then i found myself going well i'm angry at that and i'm gonna post <laughs> on that and fuck yeah, yeah you're a human right and so yeah. i remember thinking i've got to stop this like I, it's changing who i am as a person it's making me annoyed and angry and right. i don't like the direction that my life could possibly go down if i do this and so I made the decision I'm not going to comment ever on things on Facebook and or Twitter or Instagram anything anymore. I'm only going to lift people up on social media. Mm-hmm. I'm only going to say awesome job, you know, like in or if you know or if I see someone that needs a bit of support or love, you know, like I'll give that um I'm not going to be with my family in Australia, you know, where, as I talked about at the start, you know, we tend to like find that little weakness and, and I don't do okay. that anymore. Like seeing right. my family chat now, I'm that stupid loving guy that's like, love you guys. And, you know, mm. like, and, and it's changed my whole life. Yeah. It's changed everything about what I do and who I am as a person, how I interact yeah. with people, how people interact with me. And it's the whole Ted Lasso thing, right? If you've, if you've read, if you watch Ted, that Ted show, Ted Lasso, if you haven't, I'm aware of it. Yeah. But, if you yeah. haven't, watch it. It's, the interesting thing they're doing some studies around Ted Lasso is it's not what you think of it as a show, mm. it's how it makes you feel right. afterwards and like yeah. just positive and self-belief yeah. and the likes. And so, and yeah, so I think like for me, people just need to get the hell off social media. Mm-hmm. You know, people mm-hmm. just need to say, you know what? Again, innate goodness, turn that yeah. dial up a little bit yeah. Yeah. rather than the frustration dial. But it's hard because we get frustrated. You mentioned hopefulness there, and I'm aware of time and mm-hmm. your time, precious time that you've given. I'd love to wrap this up with a question, yeah. which is, what are you hopeful for in the next coming months and years? Yeah. I'm hopeful that Auckland gets out of level three. Yes. I mm. think I will never say Jaffa again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, they're, still, yeah, they're doing the hard yeah. yards for us, and they, yeah. they really are. Yeah. yeah. I'm hopeful for that. I'm hopeful that the world starts realizing that we are all just humans, you mm. know, and no matter what identity or ideology that you have, that we're all just amazing humans, you know, yeah. and that we get past this weird, crazy five to ten years of just, mm. you know, nastiness. Good so, yeah. That's mm. yeah, I'm equally hopeful for Auckland. It's a huge sacrifice, and mm-hmm. I can't imagine being stuck in lockdown again for seven weeks. It's just—it's so hard. And I, 
also really resonate. I think we're, as a human species, I think we are a little sick. I think we've been pushed outside of our natural biological and physiological kind of state with the way that the world is sitting with our systems at the moment. Yeah. And I think um, tackling, tackling it from that perspective, like how can we heal, mm. I think is a really healthy perspective, but I'm hopeful that, mm. that we can be connected to seeing as we've been through this pandemic together as a, as a species and looking at, the, looking at the state of the world from that perspective of healing and I think would be helpful for addressing a lot of other issues that we've got at the moment. Mm. So being kind to, to ourselves and to each other that we are human, mm. we are s potentially sick or we're experiencing some disconnect from our natural way of being and sharing stories and sharing sharing company and connection will help us re-kind re of engage with some of those senses that are that are going to be really helpful for the future. I really like that healing, that's good. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. You what can. about you? What are you hopeful for, DK? I'm hopeful that we'll become, we as a species, as a human species, as part of our healing, become more like Venn diagrams. Mm. Be more, we, we discover and uncover and delight in the overlaps. Mm. Because there's more of that than separateness. Mm. You know, and the more all of us have been lucky to travel a little bit and see other parts of the world, and the more I travel, the more I see similarities between nations and cultures or iwis or tribes or ways of thinking and living rather than differences. So I'm hopeful in that. Mm. Drop the mic. Mm. <laughs> yes. That was Creative Welly episode 21. I so hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. Big shout out to David again from Flash Dog Studio hosts us for the recording of the video podcast. Please check out the video podcast because that's where John O'Tucker's work you can see uh, over at Empire Films is evident and on show because Creative Welly is a unique offering to the world in terms of a beautiful video podcast. So check us out at creativewelly.com and continue to have courageous conversations with bold humans. My name's DK. It will always be. I'll catch you next time.